Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Lily Gorin, and today I'm hosting Melanie Thomas and Amanda Bittner, editors and contributors to this excellent new text, Mothers and Others, The Rise of Parenthood in Politics from UBC Press. This edited volume examines data and literature on the role, context, and understanding of parenthood, but more specifically, motherhood within politics as we understand politics very broadly understood. Bittner and Thomas organized the book into three distinct sections that take the reader through analyses of motherhood and parenthood in context of political careers and status, communication and campaign strategy, opinion, participation, and behavior. In some ways, Thomas and Bittner and their authors leave us with some more questions than answers, but I will let them discuss that and their argument for further research as we go through the discussion of this great book. But first, I would like to introduce Amanda and Melanie and ask them to tell us a bit about themselves and how they came to this project. Melanie, why don't you start us out? Sure. Thanks, Lily. Uh, so for folks who don't know me, I'm uh, an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary up in Western Canada. Um, I primarily teach Canadian politics, being in Canada, uh, but also women in politics, electoral behavior, the, you know, the kind of standard sorts of things. Um, and most of my research now outside of projects like this is looking at um, uh, gender and political psychology and engagement with politics and other such interesting things. Great. Amanda, tell us a little about yourself. Um, so I am uh, also in Canada, much like Mel, but uh, on the East Coast. So I live uh, in St. John's, Newfoundland, and I teach and I research at Memorial University uh, in Newfoundland. Um, so my most of my work is, is behavior, public opinion research, elections research, um, I've done a bit, an increasing amount of research related to gender in politics and gender in elections in particular. Um, and then the stuff that I teach is, is kind of broad in the sense that I do kind of an intro course in intro politics, but I also teach uh, public opinion. I've got a new course on political scandals and elections that I sort of teached a couple years ago. Um, and then the very super fun research methods courses that we do here. So a, a wide gamut. Thank you. So I'm really curious because this is a fascinating book um, and and not one that is obvious necessarily until you start reading it. How did the two of you come to this project? Mel, I'm going to let you start the story. Yeah. Okay. So I was um, a newly minted PhD and a postdoc um, in the Department of Political Studies at Queen's University out in Kingston, Ontario. And one day, uh, I got an email uh, and Amanda was CC'd on it and also Janine Giles, who's one of our contributors um, in the book. But the woman who kicked the whole project off is a woman named uh, Lisa Lambert. Her and I have a co-authored chapter in the book. And she had sent us a draft paper um, from a conference that she had come across called Good Mother or Good Politician and just said, you know, there's this 
tension between what it means to be a good politician and what it means to be a good mother. And so like, and the premise of the paper was basically, how do you, how do you deal with these trade-offs? And in that, she actually said there needs to be a book written called Mothers and Others that deals with how the anticipated conflict between being a mother and doing politics actually takes women out of the whole, um, takes women out of politics. And that this might be one of the reasons why women consistently are underrepresented at all levels of politics. We see that in Canada. We see that in the United States. We see that pretty much everywhere we look at it. And so uh, I think we had a few rounds of emails. And then at some point, Amanda said, you know, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good stuff here. We should, we should have a workshop on this and bring people together and actually, you know, do something with this. And so uh, we put in a grant to the Canadian funder, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, uh, got funding for the workshop, held the workshop, and then went on gangbusters. <laughs> and that's the, the book was the result of the the workshop and, and your contributors coming together and writing they're excellent papers, I assume, that then turned into chapters. Yeah, so some of the some of the uh, the chapters are from the workshop. Some have some were not, but then and we also solicited a couple of extra chapters for people who weren't actually at the workshop, just to make sure that we were hitting all the parts of um, the three areas that we had identified. Which included me. So when we proposed this workshop and, and put in this grant application initially, this was before I had any kids. And when the workshop rolled around, the timing of it was such that I had just had my first uh, my first child. Um, and she was about four, a little bit four, a little less than four months old when we had the workshop. And so I didn't realize when we put in this grant application that actually having children has a massive effect on your ability to actually do your job. Oh, yes. You kind of, you know... Uh, classic moment. So I didn't actually attend the workshop myself. So I kind of um, helped to organize it. And, I, and I, I did a lot of the work after the fact, but I missed the kind of crucial, exciting synergy moment where everybody got to kind of hang out and work together and talk about this stuff. So I'm, I'm a little bit regretful of that, but you, you know how it is. It is what it is. Um, but it gave me a really great insight onto some of the kind of difficulties that exist um, when And we have jobs that are pretty flexible in terms of our autonomy over our schedules, our projects, things like that. So it wasn't a problem for me to, to have children, to be pregnant, to continue to work. But doing parts of my job certainly were more challenging than I had anticipated before having kids. And so that was kind of a nice, um, I don't know, it just really made the whole project feel right at that moment. Like I was learning by doing and also reading and it was just, it was wonderful. All the pieces fit together in the puzzle. <laughs> what also a reason why you you uh, clearly you need to do another book project and have another workshop. Um, but moving on to the book itself, the broad thesis of the book, as I understand it, um, centers on the role of motherhood. And you all talk about the fact that parenthood is also addressed and fatherhood is also addressed, but that the thrust is really this this issue, this tension, as you've already noted between sort of motherhood and politics um, and the uh, sort of the role of motherhood and how that figures into our understanding, even our conceptualization of politics and candidates, perceptions of, you know, sort of the role of motherhood when we think about politics, the issue of partisanship and strategy, how we frame um, candidates and how candidates frame themselves and also, as you note, participation um, and distinctions in participation between mothers and fathers 
individuals, women who have children and women who don't have children. So I would like to ask Amanda and Melanie, both of you, please, to outline the thesis a bit um, more than I have, but also how it sets up the structure of your book. Um, so I guess the probably the place to start is to just to sort of build on what you've said, which is, yes, we do focus on parents, which includes, you know, parents of, of multiple genders. Um, but we can't avoid the fact that regardless of how many strides have been made in terms of family life and organization of, of workload and things like that, that parenthood is still a very highly gendered experience and that the experiences of women and the experiences of men are different. And then the relationships they're going to have to politics are also different based on their gender and their parental status. Um, So despite the fact that we really set out in this project to look at parenthood per se, um, a lot of the chapters do focus on mothers um, simply because of the nature of Uh, family life and work life uh, coming together. Um, And so when we kind of looked at these sort of three distinct areas, um, parental status and political careers, um, parental status on kind of the campaign trail and in communications, and then looking at participation and behavior, we really wanted to kind of determine to what extent um, parenthood was experienced similarly and differently for women and men parents, but also parents and non-parents. So what were the, what what does politics look like uh, depending on who you are in your family status? Um, And how does that affect the way that you engage with politics? Think about politics. How does that affect what you do on the campaign trail? How does that affect what others think of you and so on? Um, So this, this kind of Yes, parenthood is a thing that that affects more than just women, but mothers are particularly affected when it comes to politics um, in the way that politics plays out is, I guess, where I would leave it at that. Yeah, and I would add is that one way to think about it is to figure out where uh, where it become where it becomes a question where people s- start to pay attention to who's a parent, and so uh, when we look at politicians, say. Uh, I, we at least had the impression or the hypothesis that for men, um, being a heterosexual parent was the norm and that uh, it would simply not be challenged that we would have fathers who had small children uh, and doing high level, high powered political careers that would take them very far away from home. And nobody would say anything about, but shouldn't you be at home with the kids? Um, by contrast, we opened up the book with Lisa Madigan, who was just rumored to be running for governor in Illinois in 2014. She was already attorney general, so already doing the job. And she was pushed repeatedly by reporters saying, but don't you think it would, you would struggle to do this job because you have small children at home? So with, we noticed this gap with, with women. Uh, there, there's an assumption that no one is at home to look after the kids or it's their job to do it. And if they are stepping away or traveling to do politics or something along those lines that somehow the kids aren't being taken care of. But for men, there are different assumptions that are made. And so one of the things that we find in the book is that we have the most profound effects, I think, on gendered parental status really is for political careers and for politicians. Uh, Where we, one of the assumptions that we make moving into the second part is that uh, politicians, be they of whatever gender they are and whatever their parental status, they're, they're strategic actors. And so they will act to either maximize the benefit of their gendered parental status or to minimize the potential harm 
that comes from how that's discussed. And so that's one of the reasons why we move from part one with the political careers first into, but what does this look like in terms of actually communicating um, one's family status to constituents or with the media and things like that. Uh, and then the other, the third part, when we're looking at individual behavior, there's a lot of assumptions about what parental status does to things like voting behavior or political participation. And many of those assumptions are gendered. This is the idea of the soccer mom versus the hockey mom, um, security moms. Like, and so it, there aren't necessarily as many assumptions, I don't think, about men uh, and what it means to be a father and how that might change orientations to politics. So one of the things that we do find is that the key thing that matters is being a parent versus not. And that being a parent, um, there are some gender differences, but they're actually pretty minor. And so uh, in that sense, I think the individual, how like, individual citizens engage with politics, the gendered parental status interaction with, with all of that is, I think, profoundly different um, than people who are actually engaging in, say, political careers or politics as work. And I mean, and that's one of the things I found to be interesting, having myself been you know, sort of looking at the careers of people like Sarah Palin, um, and as you note, also in the book, Jane Swift, um, but also obviously Hillary Clinton, um, all women who run for executive positions as opposed to legislative positions, um, and the questions about their children and their capacity to be mothers um, in running, I found also really useful in research within the book itself, um, the distinctions between running for a legislative position or running for an executive position, which is one of the areas that I myself look at research on or do some research on. Um, so I wanted to sort of draw you a little bit more into talking to us and potential readers at the structure of the book itself. And I find it fascinating because it also integrates a broad focus on many countries um, that is quite useful. It's not just about the United States and Canada. It's not just about the United States and the UK and Canada. Um, there's an emphasis, there's there are chapters on Latin America. Um, but can you take us through essentially the organization of the book itself, um, as you just noted, with regard to the distinctions um, and and how you came to sort of group the research in these three sort of um, buckets or areas? That's a great question. Um, I guess, so in thinking about the structure of the book, we, we kind of begin with an introduction talking about kind of gender, parental status and politics broadly. Um, and refer to some of these anecdotal stories about individuals who have been pressed, like, well, well, how can you do this job when you're when you have small kids, or or why don't you have children, or what's going on there? Questions that that not everybody is asked in politics. Um, and then we break into a section where we look at political careers. So we've got chapters or chapters by Rosie Campbell and Sarah Childs looking at um, parenthood and legislative recruitment in Britain. Um, a chapter by Barbara Arneal looking at uh, lactating mothers in Parliament uh, and hers. Is comparative looking at Australia and Canada and Britain. Um, a chapter by Susan Francesquet, Jen Piscopo, and Gwyn Thomas that looks at uh, parenthood and, and mothers in particular in Latin America. Um, and then a chapter by Rebecca Hannigan and Christopher Larimer, which looks at um, 
local boards and whether or not uh, gender balance is achieved based on the rules that were introduced uh, in Iowa recently. Um, and then a chapter by Ronnie Schreiber that looks at mothers in politics, in particular look, focusing on conservative motherhood mothers and, and thinking about the role of ideology in shaping ideas about motherhood and the relationship that has to politics. Um, so that's the first section. Um, the second section is a, uh, a section on communications and campaign strategy. So Mel was kind of hinting towards that. The chapter that she has with Lisa Lambert looks at uh, communications of parental status in Canadian Parliament. Um, so looking at kind of campaign materials, websites, things like that. Um, followed by a chapter by Melissa Miller, where she looks at uh, mothers and the media on the campaign trail. So, so changing the focus from strategy to changing it to what it is that 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 women are doing on the campaign trail, not just kind of in the back rooms or on their websites. Um, and then a chapter by Carrie Langer, Jill Greenlee, and and Grace Deason, where they look at activism and um, the politicization of motherhood in the American context. So that's section two. Um, well, if I'm doing this the way that you want us to, but section three um, looks at parenthood and opinion, uh, participation and behavior. So focusing now on the individual voters and sort of citizens as opposed to uh, people running for election um, to look at the extent to which parenthood has an impact on our attitudes, values, and, and kind of whether or not we engage with politics and how. Um, and so there's a chapter by myself and my colleague, Elizabeth Goodyear Grant, looking at um, political attitudes, comparing mothers versus all others. Um, a chapter then by Janine Giles, um, which looks at motherhood and gender gap in political knowledge. So looking at what it is that people know and how motherhood plays a role in that. Um, then uh, a super cool chapter by Alison Harrell, Stuart Soroka, Shanto Iyengar, and Valerie Lapointe, which looks at attitudes about public policies surrounding parental leave in Canada, the US, and the United Kingdom. So another comparative piece, this one looking at people's attitudes um, about policies themselves. And then a chapter by Brenda O'Neill and Elizabeth Gedangle that looks at um, the role of, of motherhood in shaping uh, political and civic participation. And this, this chapter actually kind of blew me away. It's one of those ones where we think that, you know, parents are not that engaged because they're, they've got small kids and therefore they're apolitical. But actually, it seems like having kids in many ways makes you more political, uh, depending on the age of the children. So once your kids are kind of in school, that really act actually helps to mobilize a lot of a lot of moms, which... Uh, you might not anticipate. Um, and then there's a chapter uh, by uh, Michelle Micheletti and Dietlin Stoll that looks at um, consumer practices and whether or not uh, parenthood has an, has an impact on whether or not parents are kind of uh, voting with their purchasing um, in looking at families and sustainability in the environment, um, which is really neat. So there's a whole bunch of different, um, different kinds of chapters with different focuses, whether they be, you know, Canadian, European, uh, Latin American, and so on. And I think that, you know, we are comparative as ourselves, um, and we do work in public opinion, but we also do work in relation to kind of political parties, what they do, their strategies, um, and looking at political institutions. So for us, these three kind of categories were, were I think, the only way we think about politics, really, um, in thinking about what it is that politicians do and then what it is that citizens do and think. And so I don't know, Mel, if you want to add to that. Yeah, I think you gave a really great outline and summary of some of, of, of what we were doing. The, the one thing that I would add to that is I think because we didn't see much research that had been done on gender and parental status and what that means for politics throughout um, the literature, uh, I think the book also does a couple of things. So it 
uh, describes the current state of affairs. And so one of the things that we had to ask ourselves was, where are the parents and who are the parents at in various parts of politics, right? So one of the things that comes through very clearly is that in, in the United Kingdom, in their House of Commons, uh, the majority of men are fathers, but the uh, but an, it's an absolute minority of women who are who are mothers. So the majority of women are childless, and so that's a really interesting way of thinking um, about what it means uh, to do a particular kind of job. So in the UK, it seems as though there there are considerable barriers for to women being members of parliament um, if they are mothers that aren't necessarily there for fathers. That's different in Canada, right? Um, one of the things that comes through very, so part of this is describing the context. And then the other part is talking about the consequences. So this is where Ronnie Schreiber's, uh, chapter on conservative women and their approach to this, I find really interesting because many of the women there said that they couldn't do their political work without help with their kids, except to a person, they reject the idea that mothers in general should have help with work. Um, and accommodating being a parent with their kids. And so they're like, well, I couldn't have done this without my husband helping me, or I couldn't have done this without other family support. But we don't want to make that systematic. There's, we don't want that to be an actual public policy. But, you know, we couldn't have done it without that help either. Um, it's a private so, issue as opposed to a public issue, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, and the other, the other finding I find really interesting, too, is that coming from the Harrell uh, chapter on um, attitudes towards... Uh, uh, public policy and what this means. And so it's people who are the most traditional leave takers. So this would be married women uh, are going to be the ones that are most likely to access, say, a public policy related to maternity leave or parental leave. Uh, that's the constituency that's also most opposed to an atypical leaver uh, taking, accessing something like parental leave. So an atypical leaver in this case would be uh, a lone parent who was a man. And so it's actually the women who are most who are most likely to benefit from these policies, who are also most opposed to extending it to, to others who don't look like them. And so in some sense, describing who the parents are in politics, I think is really important. But then also talking about the gendered consequences of being a parent and what that means for political career or for public opinion or for policy consequences is I think also a really important. And and I think in this context, one of the things that, that the book really does a great job, it's very rich in providing um, information and examples and data from so many different sort of venues, cultures, and countries, although they are generally speaking advanced, industrialized um, democracies for the most part. Um, when you sort of set about arranging the book or, or sort of inviting people in to contribute, what was the thinking, as you say, you're both comparativists, but what was the thinking in terms of understanding the role of these kinds of countries, the United States, Canada, Australia, also Latin American countries like Chile um, and UK and Germany, uh, in terms of bringing the research in on both policies and politicians and citizens, so not both, three, um, in terms of thinking about the role of motherhood, even though you knew you were going to have like different cultures and different attitudes. Um, I think part of it was that we wanted to, to include those individuals who um, we had seen do a little bit of work in related areas before. So experts on um, 
communications, experts on public opinion, experts on behavior, experts on kind of political careers. Um, and I think part of the limitation of this book, really, um, and it's part of what keeps the book uh, somewhat cohesive on a certain level, is that we don't have every country around the world included in here. Um, and so this is one thing where it's both a, a positive and a negative at the same time, in the sense that because we're focusing largely on advanced industrial democracies, um, there are some similarities across these various countries. And so a lot of the similar, a lot of the, the attitudes and ideas about politicians and about parenthood that exist in the UK, for example, also exist in Canada, also exist in Australia, also exist in the United States. Um, and so that's, that's one area where we're able to get lessons from different places that could still be extended um, to other locations as well. But then again, at the same time, one of the negative things I think about this project, or perhaps we can call it one of the ways to kind of move forward, is to think about all the places that we're leaving out, um, where politics is a, a real thing for everybody around the world. And there are a number of um, parents' voices and experiences that we're not covering in this book at all. Um, and so that would be one thing that I think um, would be great in the future is to see more research being done on uh, democratization and, and the effect that that might have um, in thinking about the relationship that parenthood might have to politics and the limitations or maybe the non-limitations that exist in different kinds of contexts. Um, so that's one way to move forward. Um, I don't know, Mel, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to remember back um, when we were first pulling together who we wanted to invite to participate. I think we assumed that institutions would matter in, uh, at least for some of this other, for, for some of these parts. And so there's a reason why Canada, Australia, and Britain work well together because, because colonialism, um, we, we share institutions. Uh, and so that's why Barbara O'Neill's chapter um, can highlight how working in this institutional setup um, actually has some important similarities that cut across some also pretty different contexts. Um, but this is where I think having the United States and Latin American countries in, in the mix uh, are also really important because those are contexts where the political executive is directly elected. Uh, in a Westminster system, that's not the case. People will only vote for their um, local member or their local representative. And then we aggregate the political executive into the um, uh, in through the legislature there, so those those that institution is fused, um, and the the cultural approaches and the cultural discourse around things like being a mother in Latin America is is somewhat different than what it is in the United States, and I think people might make the assumption that it's actually more restrictive, perhaps, in Latin America, except that they have women who serve as political executives in the United States it hasn't quite got there yet. Um, <laughs> so, so on some level, that that's one of those things where it's just kind of like, okay, so things are working differently and maybe better, or you're you're seeing different outcomes in a context where you might not expect them. Uh, and if we add this lens, what what can we learn? Uh, and there are strategic benefits to playing off on motherhood, the super madres uh, in Latin America that I think probably would not translate well to the United States. Um, the other thing that's interesting is we have that chapter from that uses Swedish data on political consumerism. And I remember thinking very strongly when we were first setting up uh, the collection that uh, we really needed political consumerism in there, because I think that's one of those areas of political participation where we don't think about it so much. So this is the idea of who gets political when they actually shop. And that seems to me like it would be such a gendered thing, because who's 
I mean, and I, I'm going off of time use surveys. I, I don't even need to make an assumption about who's most likely to get groceries in a home. Uh, typically, women who are doing this, and they're making conscious choices on how they're actually going to spend their dollars. On the same side, parents are going to be making a series of ethical decisions when they're buying things for their children. And one of the things that gets people to consume a lot <laughs> is when you have a kid. And so I remember thinking that that was an area that would be I hadn't seen anybody do the analysis of what does it mean to bring gender and parental status into political consumerism, but I remember thinking there has to be something fascinating there, and so that we really needed to have that approach into the book. And and I think that, you know, I, again, the book is diverse in a variety of ways because it does take up so many different perspectives and dimensions of the idea of motherhood and parenthood. And I'm, I'm, I was really intrigued by it when you all were tweeting it out that it was coming out. And so I definitely wanted to get my hands on it. And now that I've been reading it, there's even more that, that I'm curious about. But one of the things that, that you both sort of write in the introduction and then also again in the conclusion is that there's need for a lot more research. So if you could take us through some of the areas where you're like, wow, this was just even the tip of the iceberg. Um, and, and, and yet nobody's really looking at it in a systemic way, or nobody's exploring these questions in a coherent sort of fashion. What are the particular areas that you were surprised and amazed by with regard to the need for more research to be done? Uh, for me, the thing that stands, there's a bunch of things that stand out, but um, what keeps coming over and over again, both with this book and then with other just even current events that, that end up happening in Canada, uh, is how under-theorized politics as a workplace is. So in my home province, for the first time over the past couple of years, we actually had women who were pregnant um, appointed to cabinet and the legislature didn't have a mechanism to give them time off for labor and delivery. Uh, and that's one of these things where it's just like, because it's clearly not yet happened. And so this is where Barbara O'Neill's chapter is, I think, really great, where it's saying, like, we don't actually confront what it means to do politics as work. Um, and the, the concluding chapter, we pick up on this pretty forcefully because there are things that we would never tolerate in any other workplace. Things like you cannot take a maternity leave. Um, you may not take parental leave. Childcare is a scant option if available at all. Like th these are things where, I mean, in Canada, if an employer denied somebody a maternity uh, accommodation, I'm pretty sure they would be in front of the Human Rights Commission losing very quickly. And yet in politics, this is this is something that we that we um, that we allow. Uh, the other area where we absolutely do not touch on this at all, but I think is related and an avenue for future research too, is also on sexual harassment. So this is looking at politics as a workplace. Um, the other thing for me about the book, where as it's structured, um, we this is just first cut, and the first cut is limited because we are utterly reliant on binaries. So we do a gender binary. Uh, we do a parental status binary. So we're talking about women and men and we're talking about parents versus not. We don't talk about things like divorce. We don't talk about lone parents in this. We don't talk about, um, we don't very talk much about sexual diversity. And so many of the parents that we're using as examples in the book are heterosexual. And I'm certain that, especially for political careers and for media and strategy and things like this, that sexual orientation will have an will twist uh, or put an, another element into uh, how this 
how this all plays out. Um, we also don't talk about race and diversity. And so I can imagine in the United States, if you're talking about somebody who's an African-American parent, um, that's going to mean something very different than, say, a white parent. I know in Canada, if we talk about indigeneity and parental status and what that means, that means we're going to enter into a whole host of new sorts of things as well. And so in this sense, I mean, I still feel like we've, we've barely scratched the surface, even using the binaries. And so there's just it's just such a rich field where questions just keep popping up every time you have an answer. There's, there's just more places to go with it. Amanda, do you want to add anything in terms of what you were surprised by or amazed or want to pursue as future research areas? It's actually really, really hard to, to, to decide, to be honest. Um, Mel and I have talked a few times about what we want to do next with where do we go from here and, and what can we look at next? And we have so many, I mean, Mel's outlined a bunch of them, so many ideas about what's possible. And so the question really is, okay, now what do we do with this? Um, and I think for me, one of the things that I found most interesting about this um, project has been firstly learning about the various kinds of rules that exist that, that may limit um, the presence of parents or, or the ability of parents to do, to wear both hats. Um, so, you know, talking about things like parental leave or, or taking a leave to, to just deliver a child, or how do you breastfeed where, you know, you're not allowed to have uh, refreshment in the house or other kind of archaic rules like that, that may, may have sort of regulatory implications um, that, that impede people's participation in politics or consideration of careers, but then also the kind of um, the values that come along with that. So even in places where parental leave, let's say in, in a hypothetical world, it's conceivable that somebody who was recently elected to politics could take a year or even four months off from their job, which is, it is a job, and take care of their child or get used to being a new parent or whatever. Um, they, I don't think a lot of them be willing to do that because of the nature of electoral politics and the fact that they are then they're they're on the clock and they've got to get reelected and there's pressures and there's public expectations about what it is that that politicians uh, should be doing and how available they should be and the idea that they would not be available because they're at home with their children um, I think is is an impediment to a lot of people's willingness to take these kinds of state um, state sponsored programs or 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 um, regulatory um, features that would allow for increased uh, balancing of these various roles. I mean, I know even locally recently we've been talking in, in the St. John City Council about um, possibly providing childcare during evening public meetings so that those individuals who can come or who want to come to the meetings to engage with, with local politicians to talk about, you know, municipal budgets, transport, whatever, um, that that way they can come and bring their children uh, and participate in these public hearings. Um, there's a lot of pushback on that, that, that people are saying, well, that's not my job as a taxpayer to pay for you to go and participate in politics or, and, and seen even worse, it's not my job to pay for city councillors' children to be watched because we, you told us you could do this job and now you're saying you can't. And so I think there's a, a, a sort of a, a lack of understanding about politics as a job um, and a willingness to treat individuals that have that job in a different way than we would allow people to be treated in other kinds of employment. So and this speaks to the kind of uh, sexual harassment or bullying that can take place with, um, with women in politics, but also moms in politics. The idea that some of the moms who were interviewed um, about um, the way they presented their family life um, were worried about their children being bullied by others because 
of their role in politics. And these kinds of things, for me, I find it fascinating, but also, you know, as a woman who also uses the internet, I have experienced, you know, trolling and bullying myself. Um, and I also worry about my kids' exposure on the internet and things like that. So it, those kinds of things are, it's, it's the separation of the institutional features of politics from, from values. And it's, it's kind of a chicken and egg question on a certain level. And our, our final chapter, our conclusion, speaks to that a little bit, where we talk about um, state programs, looking at things like um, parental leave policies, looking at early childhood education policies, looking at, um, you know, daycare policies across the OECD. Um, and we find that there's a wide variety in programming across different states. Um, and so the question is, and I think it's reasonable to assume that this is going on, but it's hard to actually, you know, point the causal finger at this, but to say, okay, well, if states have programs that allow for parents to um, have parental leave, have childcare, have things that allow them to engage in the workplace, but this will allow them to engage in the politics workplace in larger numbers than they otherwise would be, which in theory should allow for a more diverse legislature, executive, and so on. Um, and this is one where it's sort of hard to say, so do these policies come out of values? Do they come out of you know, more parents being in politics or, or how does this work? And so trying to, trying to point the, the causal arrow and to figure out, okay, well, how do we get this world where everybody is able to participate and parents can participate? And as a result of that, we get a more diverse set of representatives. Um, do we create more state policies or do we change values and how do you do that? And, and what does that look like? And so for me, I'd like to kind of press that further, but I, truthfully, I have no idea how to go about that yet. <laughs> I gotta say, for me, the the thing, even just listening to Amanda talk about it and, and thinking about this again, one of the things that really surprised me about doing this work is that, uh, I, th I mean, I think political scientists like to think that the public-private divide is this retro thing that we addressed scholarly <laughs> in the like seventies and the early eighties, and that we just kind of don't need to do it anymore. Uh, and it's yeah, like. But the, the, this rage at the idea that, um, you know, you might be able to get like two weeks off to recover from a labor and delivery or the rage that comes into politicians' offices where we did an interview where it was a man, a, a very old, uh, not say very old, but it was an older man who was, had a ton of political experience across multiple levels of government um, from the Canadian Conservative Party. So this is not a bleeding heart liberal saying that his colleagues who were women would get people calling into their offices all the time saying, I guess as a taxpayer, I'm paying for childcare in your office. And I'm really angry about that. And it comes down to this idea, like the temerity that these women have to step out of the private sphere. How dare they? Uh, and so it's clear in doing this kind of work that there is still this assumption that women belong in the private sphere or that some things about gender roles and sex roles, like gestation, belong very much in the private sphere. And so um, when Amanda talks about value change, I think that there's there's something that that's you know important about that because in some aspects of our lives we we fundamentally reject the idea that women must be privatized. But this is one of the areas where it really shows that that is much more contested than I think we give it credit for. And I think that's one of the things that I was I was sort of seeing in reading through the the book itself is it's it's as you you already noted that you know the book is contextualized in this kind of binary presentation 
because when you started the work, this was also uh, probably the easiest way to go about exploring the topic. Um, but beyond that, there's this sort of um, underlying question about sort of what do we actually define as politics? And what do we actually define as motherhood and and to a lesser degree, parenthood? Um and, you know, we can all point to like, I'm a mom, I have two children, therefore I'm a mom. But what is motherhood? And how do I experience it? And how is it integrated into, you know, how I perform my job as an academic? Um, and so for a politician who is in the public sphere, it's even more complex as your book goes through in so many different dimensions from what do you publicly talk about to what do you have to answer questions about to how are you framed to how do people think about you. And so I guess I'm really curious in my sort of political theorist context about this kind of possibly revisualizing of politics too. Like what's the public space and how do women and mothers inhabit that? Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, or I should say, which public spaces, right? So because this is where, and this is why the political consumerism stuff is so great, because when we, like, I think that's a public space that women have, uh, I mean, leaving gender gaps in income aside, the, the consumerism side of things is I think where women have power that they don't in, in other public spaces. Um, where women are disempowered would be in things like formal political institutions. So I think it's, it's taken as uncontroversial that looking at political careers and looking at um, parental status in that context is very much politics and like the public. Um, it gets a little bit more private, I think, when we're talking about individual level voting behavior and things, but <laughs> you did have me thinking there, Mel, about uh, just the, the nature of, of thinking about this idea of politics as a public space. And I mean, I think that nobody would ever define it as anything but that. But that thinking about, um, you know, engagement in the PTA or other things like that, that, that women traditionally do and moms traditionally do. I mean, I, I have two small kids. I'm on a lot of school councils and it's mostly moms that are doing this work. Um, and they're doing this work because their kids are in school and because they're engaged. And that's what's motivating them to be involved with, with school politics. Um, and I think that thinking about what that looks like as we move up the, the, the food chain or the, the political chain, whatever you want to call it. I'm really bad at metaphors. Um, as you move up from kind of school board politics to municipal politics to um, state level politics to national level politics, what, what are the expectations we have of women and moms or dads and how does that how is their job affected by their parental status? Because I think the expectations that we have on city councillors, for example, is different than those for, you know, cabinet ministers in the national government. Um, and yet we still have very similar knee-jerk reactions when children are involved. Like I remember, you know, one of our cabinet ministers in Canada who had made a statement that she was going to turn off her phone from five to eight to eat supper with her family. And this was a big scandal. Um, and I think that that speaks to the difficulty that everybody has in balancing work and life broadly. I mean, I know I, ch I have a challenge with that on a regular daily basis and my job is quite flexible and, and I don't have the kind of public pressures placed upon me to be available all the time. And yet I still feel like I've got to be available all the time to my students, to my colleagues and so on. Um, that 
what can we do to facilitate the job and allow people to do a better job? Because I'm fairly certain that, you know, turning off your phone for three hours probably allows you to do a job better because you've had a chance to refresh, you've had a chance to take a break, and so on. And that it, that it's our expectations as citizens upon these individuals that they should always be available that actually makes them worse at their job. Um, and I'm pretty sure if we had other employers demand that of their employees, we would say that that was harassment and illegal. So like, I mean, the other thing that where this also gets me going is the, the definition of being a parent. And so I don't have children that I have birthed, but my partner has kids. Um, this does not make me their parent. I, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for anybody else who's in a similar kind of family arrangement, but I, I don't see myself as a parent. Um, but this does not mean that, I mean, it, I, but I still have engagement with children, right? And children often quite closely as like the adult in, in a life, right? Um, this also has political consequences. I mean, for the workshop, um, it isn't necessarily included in the book, but for the workshop, we had a regional politician um, from my area come and, and speak. And the reason why we had invited her was because during an election campaign very early on, um, one of the challenge, one of the other competitors had said, um, this woman has not birthed any children, so how could she possibly understand any kind of family policy issues? Uh, and the there are a couple of responses that somebody can have in that context, but what this politician chose to do was to speak about her struggles with infertility. And a number of us looked at, I looked at that horrified at the idea that somebody would have to disclose something that private and that intimate um, in such a public way, just to say, I can, co- I can cogently speak to family policy. Like I, again, in any other context, I would say it is absolutely ludicrous to say that people can't actually do a policy analysis or like sensibly speak to anything political without having had these sets of experiences. And yet on the parental status side of things, that was something that was used to profoundly challenge credibility. This happened with Theresa May as well. And this happened to her twice, where her, again, a couple that struggles with infertility, um, her alleged pregnancy was used as a stick to hit her with when she was seeking privacy and her in-laws contacted them saying, it's really quite rotten that we had to find out about the news about the baby through the media. And we're like, actually, no, there's no baby. And then it turns around when she's like, fast forward a, a, a bit of time, um, she's seeking to be prime minister. And her main challenger says she can't understand how to do this because she's not a mom and I am. So, so that's one of those things too, where I think, uh, I wonder how this works for men. I think that the, the norm is assumed that, that I think is assumed that men are um, men are fathers that they're in a heterosexual marriage and that children have come from this. And so, what happens for men that are single? Um, I think there are specious assumptions about sexual orientation that are almost always presented in a negative way. They shouldn't, but I think that happens a lot. Um, in similar similar sorts of things, like there, there's just a number of things on the what does it mean to actually be an adult with and with children and that parental side of things that that has a lot of really gnarly questions that are associated with. Well, it's also, you know, it also assumes, right? It assumes nuclear family status. It assumes a variety of things that in a lot of, um, for a lot of people are not, are not exactly how they are either parents or, as you note, have associations with children who may or may not be a blood relative of theirs 
or connected to them in any formal way. Um, I think this also goes to the questions that you say with regard to areas of the book that you didn't take up directly with regard to indigenous peoples, with regard to African-American communities in the United States, with regard to family structure in general. Um, and, and I think that that's, it's a fascinating area that, you know, as you say, throughout the book, there's need for so much more research and exploration and understanding. Um, so with that, <laughs> what are you two working on now? <laughs> Together or? <laughs> Together or separately? Uh, we're working on grading files. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, I think we've had conversations about where we want to go next. Um, I know, I think both, I don't want to speak for Amanda, but I'm pretty sure both of us do keep, I mean, and you can see it's in the, the way that we, that we speak about this. I think we're both really interested in the idea of politics as work. And then what does this mean to be like a parent in this workplace? Um, that is unlike any other workplace. Like, so what does it mean to actually have like labor delivery, childcare, um, in, in office. And then, I mean, the other thing too, is I think we actually haven't described, uh, and I, and I know that there are going to be some that are going to be kind of like, oh, descriptive work. Um, that's not very important or useful, except that we don't know where the parents are in politics. We make a lot of assumptions about it. So we've had discussions about whether or not, uh, the value of actually like just doing an inventory to figure out where they are and what they're doing, what goals they have. Um, and then it, like in, and you see the gaps in that, right? And so I know in Britain, I don't want to say that our chapter sparked this, but Sarah Child has since gone on and done a report called The Good Parliament, where they're talking about what it means to do like accommodation in Parliament around things related to work and what it means when they've got big gaps in who's there and what that means for like the workplace. So I find that fascinating. I think that there's a lot of work to be done there. Uh, so I'm I'm a ditto on all that. I think that, uh, I, I think that what we would like to do is to move on to do an, an additional project that kind of stems from this project, but focuses in on on a question in more detail. So maybe it's comparative and it's an inventory type of project where we're trying just to figure out let's let's set a baseline. What's actually happening out there right now? Where are the parents? Who are they? What do they look like? What are they doing? Um, what what in what way is their parental status um, uh, visible in their jobs? Um, for me, I think part of it too is that I'm I'm really deeply interested in our kind of societal expectations of parents and their and their role um, in kind of formal politics, but also in an informal politics. And this idea that we have so in thinking about you know these women who have struggled with infertility. Um, the idea that if you don't have children, you're a strange woman, um, and that makes you perhaps less viable as a candidate. So, so kind of problematizing what our definition of normal is in terms of political careers. Um, so thinking about stereotypes about candidates and about candidates for executive office, for example, and, and what, what we think a leader ought to look like. Um, and, and how that links up to what leaders really do look like in real life and, and their and their kind of viability as candidates and our expectations about their viability as candidates. So this, for me, would jive with other research that I've done on um, perceptions of party leaders uh, on a cross-national level. But I think that it's, it's one of those questions where there are so many directions we could head into. And 
I, I'm fascinated by all of it and, and particularly fascinated by some of these archaic rules that exist. You know, the idea that you can't breastfeed your child in the legislature because it's called refreshment and refreshment is not acceptable is fascinating, you know? So, so just kind of digging up those kinds of rules that exist and saying, okay, well, is breastfeeding, is that really refreshing or not? And what does it mean if it's not refreshing? And, and just kind of thinking through some of the silliness of this stuff, um, because I think, I'll, I'll throw one more into that. Talk to Elena Kagan about what the Solicitor General is supposed to wear when he presents in front of the Supreme Court and what she was supposed to wear when she was presenting before the Supreme Court as the first female Solicitor General. It's pretty incredible. Um, so just thinking through some of these state structures or kind of norms and traditions um, and thinking through modern life and how those two things fit together um, in contemporary politics is, is fascinating. Um, and there's so much room to, to explore in so many different directions. You know, and for me, too, I think the other thing I'd like to look at is where does the opposition come from? either for extending policies or for actually introducing them. Uh, I mean, this is where if we, if the opposition to extending policies that help mothers comes from mothers, that, that, that's, that to me is pretty interesting. I, I want to dig into why that would be the case. Um, or like what, what's the, what's the hostility towards uh, people who are public about being a parent and then also public about doing politics as a job. Like, is it really about private sphere, public sphere sorts of things? Is it just more ideological? Like it would be fine if you were of my party, but because you were not of my party, it's not okay. Something along those lines. Right. So digging into the, the, uh, digging into the rage that that's, just, that's the second place I would go <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on with that. Well, and again, we cannot untangle. Um, we can talk about, you know, the intersections of other kinds of families, whether it's divorced parent, families, lone parents, sexual diversity, and so on. But we can't avoid the fact that these things are, um, that they have a serious impact on the way that we perceive politicians and the way we perceive parents. Um, and so even looking at just, you know, attitudes towards um, policies surrounding welfare and healthcare, um, how racialized our attitudes are on those things. Um, those have to affect the way we think about politics as well um, and how we think about politicians and their deservingness of childcare that we would expect for ourselves in other worlds and other jobs. Um, and I just think that that stuff is, is so interesting, um, both on, in kind of a theoretical level and thinking through, okay, what does it mean to be a public servant if you're not entitled to the things that would allow you to do your job. Um, well, I have had friends who are doing politics as work, and that's exactly the word that they use when they say we didn't want to ask for uh, maternity or parental leave because we didn't want to seem entitled. Even though in any other workplace, you would say you were actually entitled to that benefit. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is, you know, you know, the famous story about when there were three women in the Senate, suddenly they needed, they got to have a bathroom that was actually not four floors away. Those things, it's, it's, it's small, it's small and it's slow, but they, I think they make a difference. Um, but the question then really is, is, okay, so once you have some of these policies in place, does that open up the dialogue to different kinds of additional policies? Um, does that change the way politics operates? Does that actually change the pipeline of who is in politics? I think it probably does, um, but it would be great to actually have some data that we could point to. Yeah, I think sounds like a great project. Yeah. 
And someone somewhere is going to say, I can just hear somebody saying this now, that um, the solution would just be for women of childbearing age to wait and delay certain kinds of politics until that wasn't an issue. And I think from a democratic perspective and from a theoretical perspective, that is so problematic. It literally is saying um, the potential for pregnancy means that one is less of a citizen and has less deserving of democratic rights. Uh, but that's the, that's the explanation that's most commonly offered. I mean, we hear it in some of the interviews where it's like, um, and for somebody to say, it made sense for me to wait. That, that I think is different than somebody saying, you should wait. I shouldn't have to accommodate this, or I shouldn't have to think about why I'm opposed to this, because you should wait until, until pregnancy isn't a thing for you anymore. Well, it's also characterized as a disability, right? Yes, that's exactly it, um, which is fraught <laughs> as well. I mean, it can be to keeping the species alive. It's a disability. Yeah, I mean, ending up in a context that is that is certainly medically serious and potentially debilitating is not the same thing as a disability, which is yeah. And again, people with disabilities have accommodations because we want them to be full citizens. <laughs> But a pregnant woman, maybe not so much. It's definitely tricky. So we have this great book, Mothers and Others, The Role of Parenthood in Politics. And Melanie and Amanda, it has been a pleasure talking to you about it. Um, I believe people can get it from the UBC Press website. Is that correct? Possibly with a small discount, maybe. We can find the discount code. Yes. And I'm sure it's available at other online booksellers that we don't need to mention. Um, And I would love to have you both on together or separately when you produce your next books, if that would be all right with you all. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you.